Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. This episode wraps up about happiness by addressing how systematically promoting positive attitudes can sometimes be done in coercive and potentially questionable ways. Happiness is now generally seen as a mindset that can be engineered through willpower. The outcome of putting into practice our inner strength and authentic selves. The only goal that makes life worth living. The standard by which we should measure the worth of our biographies, the size of our successes and failures, and the magnitude of our psychic and emotional development. After the global economic meltdown in 2008, more and more countries taking advice from psychologists and economists thought that they could well use happiness indicators to check whether, despite the continuing decline of objective indexes of quality of life and equality, people were still nonetheless feeling well. If people claimed to be happy, then there was nothing much to worry about. After all, wasn't happiness the real and ultimate objective of politics? A priority over justice or equality? The meritocratic and individualistic values underlying happiness disguise the fundamental differences of class and endorse competition in unequal systems rather than promoting the reduction of economic inequality. If happiness has come to be so prominent in neoliberal societies, it is because it has proven a very useful concept for rekindling, legitimizing and reinstitutionalizing individualism in seemingly non-ideological terms through science's neutral and authoritative discourse. Making happy workers, not merely making workers happy, has become a first-order concern for many corporations, which increasingly turn to happiness experts in order to cheer up their employees, restore their enthusiasm for work, help them to cope emotionally with layoffs, and especially instruct employees in how to become more psychologically autonomous and more cognitively and emotionally flexible. Indeed, a closer look at the organizational reality shows that far from fulfilling this promise, these techniques have proved rather useful for organizations to compel workers to internalize corporate control, to sideline the importance of objective working conditions when it comes to job satisfaction, and to make work contradictions and self-exploitation more tolerable 
and even acceptable for employees. The combination of excerpts I just read are taken from the 2018 book Manufacturing Happy Citizens, How the Science and Industry of Happiness Control Our Lives, written by Eva Ilus and Edgar Cabanas. When I think about happiness, and here we're just going over this theme for the last two episodes, and I just wanted to add that last episode regarding this industrialization of the very concept of happiness, When I think of happiness, I can't help but recalling these two songs, uh, from one from Pharrell Williams, uh, which is titled Happy, and another one from R.E.M., Shiny Happy People. Songs that can cheer you up, but that can also put you down even more if you're not feeling quite well when you listen to them. They taunt you in a way, or can give you the feeling of being even more marginalized or unfit. Indeed, we often expect our friends, the people who surround us, to be in a good mood, to not be party poopers, and we are reluctant to deal with people's sufferings, especially if they seem persistent or chronic. The quest for happiness is an omnipresent theme in magazines, in corporations, at work, at home, in television, in apps, in everything we consume. Anytime a seminar is organized about happiness, people crave to come. I remember when I did actually my first talk on happiness for Think Olio at the Strand bookstore, it was full in no, in no time. And I think people are just very, very eager to find cheap, fixed, cheap solutions to actually fulfill this desire for happiness. Unfortunately, I uh, didn't come with, uh, with these solutions at hand. But anyway, so there is this huge market of books promoting happiness with titles like Getting Authentic Happiness, Become Who You Are Really Meant To Be, Unfuck Yourself, You've Got This, How To Live Your Best Life, The Guide To Being Glorious You. The industry of self-help books became some sort of emotional pornography in the US pop culture with narratives of overcoming hardships and becoming happy by the mere strength of the will. Parallelly, other books come out, which might sound more cynical, such as the book I've been reading excerpts from, or another example of one of these books would be The Agony of Heroes by Byung-Chul Han, which I mentioned, I think, in an earlier episode. Books which try to debunk the pitfalls we have fallen into when we get obsessed with leading a successful, happy life. We spoke in a preceding episode about the way efficiency and productivity became key values in our Western capitalist society, to the point that people get addicted to the validating feeling of having a productive day. By the way, I'm totally including myself here, and I do struggle, despite how I wish to be more indifferent and how convinced I am that more indifference to productivity is beneficial and that leisure is crucial to our actual well-being, I do struggle to let go of the productivity logic. Anyway, we did speak about that need for productivity, but we also spoke about how people are looking at us, the curating of our social image. To be happy, we need to look happy in the other's eyes. Social media definitely increased that exhortation to be happy looking. 
think about how close we are to the Black Mirror episode called Nosedive, in which smiling feels like a duty and where people's social identity is reduced to an overall score from zero to five based off of interactions with people, a ranking that can be viewed by anyone. So let's begin by first pointing out a contradiction between two messages we often read in self-help books. So on the one hand, we are told to persevere, to be dynamic, performant, to not give up, to not be a loser, and to keep pushing our boundaries. On the other hand, though, we are also asked to renounce, to just be resilient or grateful for what we have, to accept, to forgive. So the first message is pushing us towards personal achievement, self-realization. It's pushing us towards an obsession about individualism, narcissism, where people become exclusively focused on their achievements and the private validation of their efforts by others. So we have here a message that is outward or conquest-oriented, and also future-oriented, whereas the second message is more inward-oriented and focuses more on the present. In the second message, we have kind of a recycled version of stoicism, where happiness is really just a mental attitude independent from external circumstances, and where it's about accepting the things you cannot change. Here again, we think about Descartes, who was saying that we need to change our desires better than the world. We are asked to hyper-adapt, to be resilient. But here also, in this second message, happiness is essentially reduced to its egocentrical dimension with questions such as how to organize your thoughts, how to manage your emotions in order to appreciate little things in life, how to transform negative events into positive ones. So both performant and resilient narratives feed into an ideology where negative emotions have no place and must be repressed or hidden or overcome. In both cases, we fall into an obsession with the management of our emotions. We are asked to groom our behaviors, our personal development, in order to become the best version of ourselves. These messages that we often find in self-help books originate in what we call positive psychology. What is really problematic with this positive psychology, this dictatorship of happiness? The advice to be happy seems neutral or apolitical, non-ideological, because it presupposes, and rightly so, that happiness is something we obviously all want. But in fact, the be positive message is a social and moral injunction that is supported by its commercial exploitation. Happiness has become an industry since the boom of positive psychology, a discipline born in the early 2000s. It's basically a self-declared science of happiness and of personal development. One of the most famous defensors of positive psychology, Seligman, who is actually the president of the APA, the American Psychological Association, since the end of the 90s, narrates how he had an epiphany when his daughter, when they were weeding together in their garden, told him that she had decided to be happy at five years old instead of remaining the complainer she had been. From then on, 
psychology was redirected from fixing negative emotions and shortcomings towards nurturing positive emotions. Seligman was propulsed to stardom pretty quickly after he reformed psychology that way. He went to famous shows, he even met the Dalai Lama and a lot of uh, different prominent public figures. The values that positive psychology, a term actually initially coined by Maslow, promotes are gratitude, forgiveness, meditation, and high achieving. I mean, it all sounds good. And after all, even if there is clearly a commodification of this happiness mantra, given its huge impact on education, economics, therapy, medicine, and public policy, is it a big deal, after all, that it is lucrative if it works and if it is actually based on scientific evidence? Well, let's see if it is backed by science as much as it pretends to be. Just like psychoanalysis is not a science, positive psychology either. It is an ideology, an ethical suggestion, maybe at best. At this point, it looks even more like a religion than like an actual science. It is more about prescribing practices, promoting values, than about discovering objectively how the mind actually works in all its complexity. In his book Flourish, published in 2011, Seligman says, positive psychology called to me just as the burning bush called to Moses. And indeed, it often can feel like positive psychology is the new opiate of the masses or opium of the people, as Marx used to say about religion. The very popularity of positive psychology today might actually be due to its entanglement with religion. There is a crave for spirituality in America. There are yet other possible ties between positive psychology and religion. For instance, the fact that it receives huge funds from the Templeton Foundation, which gave Seligman projects uh, several millions of dollars. The Templeton Foundation, for the people who never heard of it, supports the intersection of religion and science. John Templeton, who passed away six years ago, was an evangelical Christian and supported various American conservative causes. A concern here is that this type of private sponsoring always risks to affect the results of the research that it gives money to. In his autobiography, Seligman refers to a Christian tract he read that said, I quote, religion and science are opposed, but only in the same sense in which my thumb and forefinger are opposed. And between the two, one can grasp everything. That is typically in philosophy what we call a weak analogy fallacy. It sounds great, even beautiful, but is it actually accurate and rationally acceptable to compare religion and science to two fingers on the same hand? We love these poignant analogies, but aren't they more about poetry than about truth? Another issue that one can raise regarding the various values promoted by positive psychology is the consideration of material achievement as a goal in life. A flourishing life is a successful life, and Seligman himself describes in his book Flourish a 32-year-old woman named Senia, a, I quote, Harvard University summa in mathematics, who is fluent in Russian and Japanese and runs her own hedge fund as a poster child for positive psychology. 
well, that's putting the bar a bit high and the emphasis on the self-made man or woman mythology. It assumes that happiness is a matter, again, of personal choice, making thus unhappiness a choice as well. If a person suffers, they are responsible for it. They didn't make the right choices. They weren't strong, persistent enough to overcome the negative circumstances that were met. That assumption that happiness is a matter of choice, of willpower, not only defies the etymology of the word happiness, which includes happen, which comes from hap, an archaic term for luck, fortune, or chance, but also, and more importantly, it promotes a naive optimism about the control we actually have. If you want, you can, right? If you really want something, you can have it. But what do we mean when we tell someone you can be happy? The verb can can actually mean very different things. Are we saying you have a right to be happy? You are allowed to be happy? Then fine, but we're not saying much. Or are we saying, when we say you can be happy, it is in your power to make yourself happy? Well, the success story often leaves unquestioned the structural limits of this capability, of this willpower ideology. We are pushed by positive psychology to become entrepreneurs of ourselves and possibly even engage in auto-exploitation, which might actually result in exhaustion, in a burnout, namely a shameful failure of ability. There is no space left for being allowed not to be able or to not be able, as Han says when he speaks about the achievement society in his book The Agony of Eros. I quote, whoever fails is at fault and personally bears the guilt. No one else can be made responsible for failure. The self-made man mythology, to which positive psychology definitely subscribes, is a strong cultural belief, very well advertised, but it makes us forget or deny that in the US, just as anywhere else, people who manage to get out of structural poverty by mere willpower are extremely rare. The follow your dream faith belittles the adversity people experience when trying to reach these very dreams. If we consider that we are the sole architects of our social and economical destiny, then it is up to us to build the conditions of our success. But unhappiness also becomes our responsibility, our fault, the consequence of insufficient efforts, commitment and perseverance. In a way, positive psychology might promote an ideology where you blame the victim. So all this is not to say that hope is a bad thing per se, or that smiling is always hypocritical or uncalled for, or that we should all be cynical pessimists. But there is a type of hope that conveys a misleading message regarding the way society actually works. It is a message we hear in success stories singling out exceptionally lucky journeys, often leading to money, rarely to happiness per se, by the way, and overlooking the fact that social immobility and determinism is the norm for reasons that are not merely dependent on the individual's will. When looking at positive psychology, we can point out this problematic assumption about willpower but also two other problematic assumptions. One 
is that it suggests that suffering could be avoidable or could be radically and definitely erased from our existences. But are we naturally even able to not suffer at all? Maybe suffering, regardless of what creates it and regardless of our efforts to eradicate it, is a natural part of our existence. A necessary part, perhaps, regardless of the conditions we live in and the biological luck we might have inherited from our parents. Another problematic assumption about positive psychology is that it suggests that positive emotions and negative emotions are always clearly defined and diametrically opposed. That there is supposedly a clear or obvious hierarchy of emotions, you know. On the one hand, the positive emotions, on the other, the negative ones. Well, sometimes they are actually intertwined. Think of fear and excitement when you go surfing and are about to catch a wave, or sadness and pleasure when you listen to a sad song. But let's imagine for a minute that your positive psychologist admits that some adversity is really not under your control and really undeserved. Let's imagine that he recognizes that you can get traumatized by an accident. Well, then he would probably still have an answer. Now we have to be architects of our emotional reaction to that adversity. We find some echo of stoicism in that again. We might have no control on the events that affects us, but we can control the way it affects us. We are expected to be resilient, to adapt. There is this pressure to be flexible, to adapt to everything, a message we often hear from politicians when they make it seem that what is happening in the world has nothing to do with their doing, but is just about natural forces we need to cope with, which supposedly affect us all on the same level. But don't let me get carried away, and let's look at some vocabulary. What does resilience mean? Actually, it's a term that comes from physics, and it means the capacity for a material to resist to shock or to retake its initial form after that shock. Boris Cyrulnik, a Holocaust survivor and a famous neuropsychiatrist and psychoanalyst, at the end of the 90s, recycled that term, resilience, to make it a synonym for positive adaptation after a traumatism or an adverse situation. To be resilient is to be able to remain psychologically healthy enough to move on despite the gravity of an incident that could have affected us much more. Let's look at a peculiar, very well-funded program called CSF, Comprehensive Soldier Fitness. Here is a description found on their website. CSF marks a new era for the Army by comprehensively equipping and training our soldiers, family members and Army civilians to maximize their potential and face the physical and psychological challenges of sustained operations. We are committed to a true prevention model aimed at the entire force, which will enhance resilience and coping skills, enabling them to grow and thrive in today's army. Some of the problems that have raised criticisms is that the CSF program is a massive research project launched without pilot testing nor preliminary review by an independent ethics review board. 
But when we look more at what the core of the mission is, we can see that it assumes that we have or can gain control over our ability to be resilient. Some people are more or less naturally prone to be affected by traumatizing events. What if we can't be resilient enough? Here again, it insists on this individual autonomy. And this autonomy is not anymore an aspiration in today's society, but it is an expectation, again, an injunction. Pulling through is not a hope, it is what needs to be done. Rather than an empathetic attitude, our society encourages a coaching spirit that is not exempt from judgment against the people who just don't manage to pull through and to be socially functioning. Now again, being willing to feel happy is certainly a valuable aim, but the fact that it is so fashionable lately and so mandatory raises the question of the actual beneficiaries of such optimism. Maybe this quest for happiness is more profitable to the people who will economically profit from it than to ourselves. There is an enormous supply of tools, books, therapists, life coaches, consultants, of people who make a living on practices based on positive psychology. So much so that it takes an entrepreneurial twist in two ways, I would say. In the sense, first, that promoters of positive psychology have entrepreneur-like strategies. Look at the vocabulary we use now when we say we have to work on our happiness. We have to work on our relationship, working on ourselves, etc. We have to manage our anxieties. Everything is about management and work. But also, positive psychology takes an entrepreneurial twist in the sense that companies see the money they can make on employees who are told, good job, you're doing great, employees that are subjected to the smiley tyranny. The injunction to be happy becomes a political tool. It shapes how the good employee, the good citizen, should behave, how the good cog should function. The individual is a capital that companies now understand how to invest in. We're going to have meditation classes and go send the employees to feed goats in the countryside on the weekend so they can come back all charged up, all ready to work again, work better, work more for better productivity, at least on the short term. Deep analysis of what is problematic in people's life doesn't matter much. What matters is immediate relief. As long as you're back on track, functional again, it's all good. So the focus is on the short term. Our traumas, our problems when we feel unhappy might sometimes not be solved by coaching solutions supposed to be conveniently fast, efficient, and simple. For some people, that kind of approach might end up being too superficial. And for some social issues, too. By promoting happiness the way we do, we tend to hide the structural social problems leading to the unhappiness of so many and make unhappiness just a matter of individual psychological deficiency. Personal responsibility, it's my fault if I'm unhappy, prevails over a social collective responsibility. 
Today's obsession with self-fulfillment, promoted by the cult and industrialization of happiness, alternatively tells us to go beyond our limits, to go aggressively get the most out of life in a frenzy of achievement, and to step back and be grateful, to turn to mindfulness exercises. Sure enough, Ilus and Cabanas, in their book, voice their skepticism about mindfulness. Mindfulness often promotes the idea that our problems come from ourselves, not from the socioeconomic reality we live in. So what needs a reform is not society, but oneself, who needs to improve. But this call for directing our attention to ourselves instead of to the socio-economic reality we live in might just lead to excessive self-centeredness and actual indifference to the world instead of a better adequacy between this world and ourselves. So mindfulness, says Cabanas and Iluz, brings with it a dangerous anesthesia regarding social sufferings and systemic issues within our economical and political institutions. We could risk saying that maybe some people not only have the right, but really shouldn't be happy under the circumstances they live in. Maybe they should not be resilient. Maybe they should not be grateful. In a world with such an insecure market economy, sexism, racism, less funds for education, not enough social and medical protection, in a world of indifference for climate change from lobbied politicians, maybe people should be angry so necessary changes can be actually fought for. Maybe justice, solidarity, equality are goals just as much important to pursue than happiness. We dedicate so much time and energy to look for our own happiness that we not only are unable to really feel happy, but also we miss out on what really matters as a society. In this episode, what we tried to do was to bring some nuance and critical views in the picture, in the landscape of happiness, and to unveil what interests and ideologies might be served by positive psychology principles. I just want to end here by a quote of Iluz and Cabana's book, again, recalling Nozick's experiment that we mentioned last month, and hopefully have you think about it on your own. We need a kind of hope based on critical analysis, social justice and collective action that is not paternalistic, that does not decide what is good for us on our behalf, and that does not aim to spare us from the worst, but that places us in a better position to confront it, not as isolated individuals, but together as a society. To hide such negative feelings under the rug of positive thinking is to de facto stigmatize and make shameful the emotional structure of social malaise and unrest. Pleasure and the pursuit of happiness cannot trump reality and the pursuit of knowledge, critical thinking about ourselves and the surrounding world. An experience machine of the type that Nozick imagined and Huxley novelized is today the equivalent of a happiness industry that aims at controlling us. It not only blurs and confuses our very capacity to know the conditions that shape our existence, it also makes them irrelevant. 
knowledge and justice rather than happiness remain the revolutionary moral purpose of our lives. While talking around to people about positive psychology and the critique presented by the book by Illus and Cabanas, I happened to have uh, had an interesting conversation with someone named Grady, who seemed to disagree with some points that the book makes. Grady means is a retired American business executive and government official who now writes numerous articles often drawn from his business and political experience. So, Grady, I recall a recent discussion we had about happiness. And uh, during that discussion, I do remember mentioning Eva Illus and Kamala's book on, on happiness, on happy crassi, as uh, the French title of this book goes. And you seemed, I would say, at the same time intrigued, but also quite uh, on, on, uh, on another spectrum of the type of arguments that are being made in this book. So I just want you maybe to reflect on that in order to actually bring into this episode a nuance in regards to the content that it has. Uh, it, it, make, it makes the, the most strange argument, uh, in my view. Um, the, um, the, the, the writers are ideologues, clear. Um, and what they do is they, they, they seem to... He seemed to really have it in for uh, for Seligman and the American uh, Psychological Association, American Psychology Association, because what they do is is the strangest thing. Chapter after chapter, they present in, uh, extensive evidence that happiness is unrelated to income. They present uh, tremendous evidence from Seligman and others, and from the APA, that basically people behave in an individualist way and like behaving in an individualist way and get happiness from an individualist way. And then at the end of each chapter, they simply sit there and say, but that's all wrong. And then they put a bibliography in which basically says that it's all right. So it clearly started with an ideological framework that they basically, they, did, they don't like Seligman, they don't like the APA, and that's all fine. I can certainly sympathize. But the arguments they make, uh, they present no evidence. Uh, they just make assertions, uh, and usually, usually dramatically ideological assertions. They, they'll, they'll, they'll go through data, psychological data, and then they'll say, and beyond that, we believe capitalism is really bad. Um, <laughs> and I, I read this and I go, okay, you know, we're going to start with the premise that capitalism is bad and that people need to be put in a framework uh, that we think is the right framework that'll make them happy. And it needs to be kind of a, a socialist collectivist framework because we know what's best for them. Even though they say that's not what they want, and even though all the evidence that's been collected by you know hundreds of different citations in the bibliography of this very book suggests that they're wrong. So I have to say they, they are stern in their views and they are determined and they're like a little bulldog or two bulldogs, I guess, that have a bone in their teeth and they, no matter what happens, they're not going to let go of that bone. So it was an odd book. And, and it basically made an incredibly strong case that happiness is unrelated to income. And, and the data kind of suggests that. Uh, and it's also how you can get lost in data. There are studies that show that across uh, socioeconomic groups that poorer people uh, are less happy. And that's clear in the data. And yet, when you dig to the data deeper, you find that the real key factor is whether they're employed 
in meaningful work. And when you factor in employment versus unemployment for poor versus poor and wealthier, middle class and wealthier, it turns out they're exactly the same. The data is exactly the same. And the, 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 the folks at the lower end of the economic spectrum may have trouble finding the job they want or, or, or jobs at all. And because of that, they, they're unhappy, not because they're poor, apparently, uh, but because they don't have satisfying work, and that leads to less satisfaction in their lives and their self-image, which, which I think most people can understand. And oddly enough, what it suggests is that the, the key to true social happiness is not uh, large-scale income, income equality or large-scale social engineering or large-scale redistribution of capital. What it suggests is large-scale efforts to get the private sector economies to create jobs and to create a wide range of jobs so people have options and can have jobs they're proud of and like and enjoy and give them satisfaction. And it suggests that strategies aimed at economic growth, stimulation, job creation uh, are much more effective than the, than the social engineering jobs uh, that are often created in these short-term public works projects. You know, you know, as they say in the Soviet Union, we'll pretend to work, you pretend to pay us, and uh, nobody's happy, and the alcoholism goes to the roof. <laughs> But just, just to go back on, on one point, so if I understand well, what you're saying is that the book is actually uh, conveying a message that is at the very opposite of what the, the authors are trying to do. It does. So, for instance, right. It, astoundingly, yeah. So what, what you say, if I understand you well, is you, you, you do say that happiness has nothing to do with wealth, right? Not so much that it suggests anything dramatic. I, you know, people are people, and they're ambitious, and they're proud, and they, they like to get out and achieve and take pride in achievement. They like to be, you know, complimented or rewarded for what they achieve. I mean, people are people. It's hard to re-engineer people. But don't you think that there is also, even if you say that the two authors are ideologues, and I, I, I understand that, that point, they are also speaking about uh, yet another ideology, which is... Uh, the self-made man or the self-made woman, should we say also today, mythology, right? This uh, follow your dream faith that we are very much sold on U.S. soil specifically. Now, now why, do you, why do you say it's mythology? Let's explore that ah, for a Yeah, second. that's a good question. Because I do think that there are structural inequalities, and in that regard, I agree more than you, I think, with the authors of the book. There are structural inequalities that are very hard, or harder at least for certain people to overcome than for others. And maybe being sold that dream in might be sometimes... Inequalities, inequalities <laughs> of income, or inequalities of opportunity? Inequalities of opportunities. Opportunity, okay, then we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine, go ahead. And so being sold that dream of you can basically become whatever you want if you put enough effort in it might be somehow detrimental uh, for certain people who, if they don't succeed, have nobody or nothing to blame else than just themselves in that kind of framework. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on this. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I think uh, certainly there has been uh, restrictions. There have been implied class restrictions, socioeconomic restrictions that have existed over, you know, forever, frankly, in just about every society I can think of. But I think there has been a tremendous effort to overcome those. I think certainly in the last 50 to 60 years, at least in the, in the U.S., there's been a tremendous uh, effort uh, to try to create more equality of opportunity, uh, you know, Head Start programs and uh, 
other programs to help uh, the poor people uh, have a better opportunities to enter education. There have been efforts to put an income floor aimed at children, essentially, uh, uh, and families with children, uh, so that children, you know, have an income floor and uh, have food, housing, and uh, literally trillions of dollars, astoundingly large amounts of money have been spent, more, certainly more in the U.S. Than, than it's a multiple of any other country in the world. And I think there's, there's very good evidence that's occurred. I mean, in 2019, the unemployment rate among blacks and Hispanics and women in America was the lowest in history, literally in history. And it suggests that, you know, that it's moving in, in generally the right direction. And income inequality actually became less. Uh, real wages rose in 2018, 2019, in a way they hadn't in the previous 15 years. So it suggests in the data, these are extremely difficult problems to figure out and to deal with and to engineer. But it did suggest that that having an extremely low unemployment economy uh, was moving in a, in a relatively good direction. But there's still going to be frustration. There, are, Of course, there are you know, a variety of structural inequalities that, that apply to minorities, women, that I think people are aware of and they're trying to overcome in a very serious way. Uh, there are different philosophies on how to overcome them, and that's an entirely different issue we can talk about. And but, yeah, but I don't by think overcoming, you mean psychologically overcoming or actually economically overcoming? Oh, economically overcoming, for sure. Economically, okay. Because my, my point precisely, and, and the point of the book, I do think as well, is the fact that it seems the way that happiness is being sold to us in a way uh, tells us that we need to overcome psychologically the, uh, the uh, inequalities that some people have to suffer. Basically, the people who might very well be victims of these structural inequalities that you acknowledge exist sure. might very well be told either be positive all the time when really maybe being positive is not really helping the situation to concretely change or be resilient, adapt. Yeah, I think being, I think being positive is probably a better piece of advice than being negative. <laughs> I think find something you enjoy doing. Try to be good at that. Do not particularly worry about the economic uh, rewards you get from it, but find something that really is satisfying to you um, and I think people who are happy do that. And I think that's true of people. I think people who are wealthy, but very unhappy, have focused on getting wealthy, but not focused on doing what they enjoy doing. And I think people who are poor, uh, who are happy, uh, have actually embraced whatever work they have, whatever their, whatever their life is, and have um, found ways to find gratitude in that. And I think that psychological aspect is, is extremely important. The working on the economic side, I think, is, uh, is, is really a dead end for philosophers because the politics are phenomenally complicated. The social engineering is generally unsuccessful. Uh, in fact, it's always unsuccessful. You know, having been involved in massive social engineering projects myself and the welfare projects of the 60s and 70s, and, and a book just came out called Boomers, which describes me and the people who worked with me who created most of these new welfare programs in the 60s. And it describes how they all went wrong, how they spent trillions of dollars, and they brought more than 100 million people out of poverty. But they also managed to destroy the black family in the process uh, uh, through demotivation. And it made them 
I think, un, more unhappy. They were better off economically and, and less well off in terms of happiness. So I, I sort of touched the area of social engineering and concepts of income redistribution very, very carefully because they're, they're extremely complicated from an economic perspective and they're phenomenally complicated from a, from a psychological and sociological perspective. Uh, when you go after with higher taxes or income redistribution programs, uh, the wealthy in business, you basically discourage them from investing. Uh, you discourage a lot of their effort. And in the end, what you wind up doing uh, is basically uh, making them less well off, but you make the poor people very much less well off. And that, that some people will accept that and say that's, that's, a, that's fair. That, that's fair because the poor, the, poor, the, 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 the wealthy got uh, nicked. But if you do the other way around, if you actually let the economy grow and you don't drive for massive income redistribution and income equality, quote unquote, and you reduce taxes, you actually wind up with a phenomenon where the wealthy get phenomenally more wealthy, but the poor get phenomenally more wealthy and they get jobs and have hope and can excel and they're much happier. But that is considered very unfair. And the problem is there's no, there's not, there's not a third choice. Uh, those are the two choices. Uh, folks pretend that if you sort of redistribute from the top and the bottom, uh, everything will grow and be better, but it actually doesn't. Everything shrinks and is more equal, uh, sort of. Mm. That reminds me Ayn Rand's positions. It's very similar to what she says. It, 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 it's kind of Ayn Rand, although Ayn Rand was much more cynical. But she, she had uh, no sympathy for altruism. And what's odd in this world is some of the most successful capitalist economies are the most generous. They have the highest levels of foreign aid. They basically are very generous on uh, making sure they have extremely good income floors across their economies. I mean, the, the socialist countries are extremely cheap on helping other uh, poor countries, uh, even if they're tremendously successful. And it is an oddity and, and very anti-Ayn Rand that some of the most dynamic capitalist economies, which you would think would be the most cutthroat and insensitive, actually turn out statistically to be some of the most sensitive. So that's why I said it's complicated. It is not the, it is not the image that people project on the system. And so I think it requires a little bit, a little longer conversation. Thanks, Grady, for this contribution to this episode and for shedding a different light onto the topic that was discussed. You take care. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? A podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. If you want to listen to other episodes, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us. You can also support us on Patreon. Contributions on our Patreon page would help us continue producing this podcast without ads and develop our project in innovative directions. So thank you for supporting us to whatever extent you can. You can find the link to our Patreon page in the episode description. Patreon.com slash can you feel it? P-H-I-L. Can you feel it? Also, if you enjoyed this episode or other previous ones, do spread the word. You can leave us a review and a rating, which makes a difference by helping others find us. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, 
recording and editing the podcast, as well as composing all of the music. Stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>